Pleasure to be speaking to you once again. My name is uh, Matt Carvel, part of the eldership uh, team here at the church. And uh, we're, it's part of our service where we have some teaching uh, from the Bible. We're going to have that now. I'm going to say a few words to introduce the passage and we'll hear it uh, in a moment. don't know if you're aware, I wasn't until I looked it up this week. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And just two of them, just two chapters, describe the world before it gets broken and messed up. And so the rest of them, 1,187, describe a broken world, but a God who has come to save. And so in that way, that's just an indication of how the Bible is a story of salvation. It's not actually primarily a story or a book that is for our instruction or about people. It's actually about God and what he has done and is doing and will do about a world that is broken, broken by sin. That comes in in Genesis chapter 3. And so the Bible is a story of salvation. Perhaps you've are familiar with some of the Bible and you think, well, okay, you're saying the Bible is a story of salvation, but there's lots that goes on in the Bible. And especially if you read through the Old Testament, there's lots of stories and some of those stories are unusual or unexpected or hard for us to understand and get really into what's happening. It doesn't seem that those stories are about salvation. Well, actually, as we understand how it all fits together, we realize that they are. God actually, through history, has used individual stories, individual people, to show his big story of salvation in their lives. And what we get in the Bible is repeated themes of salvation, of God's rescue, of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has come to do. We've been in a series here called Buried, and it's about the story of Joseph, which is in the end of the book of Genesis. And it's quite obvious when you get to know the story of Joseph that his story is a story of salvation. It's a story of pit to palace. He gets betrayed by his brothers, and we've been looking at over the last few weeks how God redeems him, rescues him, brings him from that pit into a place of prominence. And so we've got the big story of the Bible of salvation. Joseph's story is of salvation as well. But also the chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 43, is also within that, like sort of Russian dolls, as small as you go, it has the same pattern. It's a story of salvation in itself. And we're going to learn today something of the nature of faith and what it means to come to God. You might be here and... The idea of coming to God is quite new to you. How do you approach God? Well, that's something that we all need to keep learning about because there's often ways that we come to God, whether in prayer or just in worship times, that we can get off track. And this story that we're going to hear about today is a wonderful reminder that when we come to God, he meets us with his peace and with grace. And so I pray that it be particularly helpful to to all of us today. It's a story of Joseph's brothers. Just to catch you up before uh, we hear the passage. Uh, Joseph's brothers have been far from him, uh, but they're facing famine. And what they have to do is go back 
to Egypt where Joseph is in order to get food. And that's what this chapter uh, is about. But what you'll see as we listen to the whole chapter is it begins with famine and it ends with feasting. (laughs) And when we see feasting in the Bible, again, it's a common pattern of God's salvation. It's a kingdom. In God's kingdom, there is feasting. Often God's salvation, his rescuing of his people, that picture of feasting is key. And so that's something to watch out for. We also have the brothers come to Joseph in Egypt and they come to the house. The house where they they want to buy food. They're coming for physical food, but actually what they, they find is they come in, it's their rescue and their reconciliation and their redemption. And so this picture of coming into the house, again, it's a picture of how anyone can come to God's house. And what we see is these brothers, they come with a bit of trepidation. They come with a sense of guilt. They come with wanting to pay back what they feel they ought to. But they're met with grace. And there's a steward on the door. Listen out for him. He sounds an awful lot like Jesus. (laughs) And he has a wonderful message for them. So let's listen to the passage now from Genesis chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face, unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. 
the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant our father is well, he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother, of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him, Back to the beginning of that passage there, we have Joseph's father, who's called Jacob, or in this uh, passage is called Israel, because his names get changed to Israel. And we've been thinking about him for the last few weeks, and I don't know about you when you heard that just now. What do you make of him? What, where is he at in this moment? I think you can look at it from, from two angles, really. Because on the one hand, he seems, well, I said last, the last time I spoke that he was in a place of brokenness to some extent. He seems bitter, perhaps. He, on the one hand, he's, he's reluctant to part with Benjamin. He knows that they have to go to Egypt. But he doesn't want Benjamin to go. He's also seemingly angry or at least exasperated with his older 
uh, 10 sons. He says there in verse 6, why did you treat me so badly by telling them, telling uh, the people in Egypt about him and about their younger son, Benjamin? He also doesn't personally go. He sends his sons, but he hangs back. And then there's that interesting thing that he says there. If this happens, if I lose another son, because remember, as far as he's concerned, Joseph is gone. Joseph's dead, as far as he is aware. Simeon had been taken before, and now he's facing the prospect of losing Benjamin as well. And he thinks of that and thinks, I'm bereaved. How do you read that? Verse 14. Is it a sense of he's kind of given up and resigned to defeat? Because you could look at it slightly differently. On the other hand, well, he is the one that initiates the plan. He speaks first in this passage. He says, right, (laughs) we don't have any food left. The only food there is going to be is in Egypt. So you need to go. And also, even though he is reluctant to send Benjamin, Judah steps in and, and promises his safety. And Jacob relents and says, okay, go. And also there, you would have noticed verse 14, Jacob refers to God Almighty. And that's not just a passing reference to God. By saying God Almighty, he's kind of invoking the covenant promises that would have been on his family. From Abraham, Isaac, now to Jacob. He's kind of referring to that and saying, God Almighty, have mercy So there is some sort of recognition here of God's hand and perhaps of faith. Perhaps for Jacob this is a step of faith. It seems to be part of it. Because you could look at that sense of like him saying, I'm going to be bereaved and being willing to lose Benjamin. Well, he's willing to send Benjamin so that the rest of them are saved. Maybe there is faith here after all. And I mentioned at the beginning, this whole passage is a picture of salvation. In the Bible's story of salvation, well, a key element in salvation and how has God saved us? Faith is a vital component. And in the person of Jacob here, we get a picture of faith. What does faith look like? Well, I think as we look at Jacob, we see that Actually, even courageous faith looks a little different maybe than we might suspect. What is it to have faith, to trust God? Is it feeling super confident? Is it, I know, I'm, I'm positive, I'm buoyed up, I know God's going to come through for me, I'm full of faith. Is it a positive feeling? Well, it might be. It might be bold. It might look confident to have faith in God. But I think Jacob here reminds us that sometimes our most important exploits of faith sometimes feel like we're just holding on. That's where Jacob is. He's just holding on. God's brought him to the end of himself. And that's what faith looks like. It's unglamorous. Jacob's desperate. His family is facing ruin. He's 
I think there's doubt here as well. And in desperation, he cries out, God Almighty, have mercy. And what we see is that God listens to that prayer. This is what courageous faith can look like. Being at the end of yourself. (laughs) Just pleading to God for mercy. And this action of faith is a key turning point in Jacob's life. And we, so we've said it many times before, but we'll say it again. Faith, to have faith in God, it's not actually about the amount of faith that you think you have. Or what it feels like. Faith, saving faith, is all about the object. <laughs> all about who you're putting your faith in. Doesn't have to feel spectacular. But Jacob here, he cries out to God in his desperation. And he trusts his life and even his family's life to God. And that is what makes all the difference. And we know from what happens that God hears this cry. God honors this step of faith. And Jacob here, in this act of faith, he he lets go of the one thing that is most precious to him in his life. That's involved in this step of faith. To trust God is to let go of the thing that he's clinging to most tightly. We've already talked in the last few weeks about how Jacob shouldn't have had favorites with his kids. That's not a good thing to do. But it's not just that he preferred Benjamin or he liked his character or whatever more than the others. You have to remember what Benjamin represents. Jacob had several wives. Again, not a good idea. Don't copy that. But the love of his life was Rachel. And Rachel bore Jacob two sons. One of them was Joseph. And he's, as far as Jacob is concerned, has been lost already. And the other is Benjamin. So you have to recognize here, Jacob saying goodbye to his son Benjamin, not knowing if he's going to see him again. He's saying goodbye to the last piece of Rachel that is in his life. That is a huge step for him. And in that moment, he's trusting God. Trusting himself and his family to the mercy of God. It's a poignant moment. It's a desperate moment. But that's what faith looks like. God brings us to the end of ourselves. We can't control the outcome. And say, God, help. God, I let go of what I was clinging to. Have you ever been in that situation? Where there's things in your life that you know you need to let go of. You don't know what the outcome will be because of that, but you know the prompting of God. To trust God is to let go of that physical comfort or security. And sometimes it doesn't look spectacular. It's a moment of desperation. That is faith. And that is what Jacob demonstrates here. Perhaps you're in that place even today. You know God's prompting you. There's something, an area of your life that you need to trust God in. Don't wait to feel spectacular about it. Trust God. Trust God with your life. He is at work, just like he is at work with Jacob. 
So Jacob sends his sons towards Egypt and demonstrates faith by doing that. And so we continue on the narrative. The sons travel this 200 mile or so journey to Egypt. And they don't know that it's Joseph who is in Egypt and who is in this position of power. But he sees them coming. He sees them coming. And he instructs his steward, the manager of his house, to bring them into the house. And we read there in verse 18 that the brothers are hesitant. They're hesitant to go in. They're afraid. Because the last time they bought food, Joseph secretly put their money back in. And they didn't realize. And they feel, oh no, have we robbed the Egyptians? And so they want to pay them back. And so what they have is this, they have this encounter on the, the interaction on the doorstep. <laughs> They're reluctant to go in and they have this conversation. And this is another picture of salvation. It's like coming to God. How do we relate? How do we get in to knowing God? How do we approach him? And the brothers in saying, well, we need to pay back what we owe, they demonstrate a common mistake that perhaps even we are prone to make when we come to God. To feel that we ought to pay him back. <laughs> to feel reluctant to approach God. And I'm not really even criticizing Joseph's brothers for acting in this way because in many ways they're just trying to be honest. <laughs> they're just being well-meaning. Well, we owe this money. We should, we should pay, it, pay it back. But what they get wrong is that they're, they're looking at themselves. They're focused on what they've done and what's going on with them. And they don't realize who they're coming to. They don't realize it's Joseph. They don't realize they're coming to one who knows them. They don't realize that they're coming to one who is ready to meet them with grace and with mercy and even with forgiveness. But the brothers come in with their money and they don't realize that their money can't buy mercy. Because did you hear what they say? They say, oh, it's because of what happened last time that this money was returned to us and we owe it back. They don't realize they're coming to Joseph. What they owe to Joseph in betraying him 20 years before is way more than they even realize. And it's the same with us as we come to God. When we come to God, whether it's for the first time at the beginning of a relationship with him or when we come back to him again and we're, maybe we're aware of our faults <laughs> and we come to God, we don't actually realize the extent of what we owe God. Let me read that verse, verse 18. The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us and our servants and seize our donkeys. <laughs> What's going on in them? They're coming to this house, this house of salvation, and they're coming with fear. They're coming with a sense of guilt, a sense of shame, a sense of suspicion about what is going to happen. And again, I think that's a really helpful picture of the emotions that we might have when we approach God. 
Maybe you approach God in prayer this week. And you're fearful of his disapproval. (laughs) Maybe your heart feels heavy with guilt and shame. Or you're struggling to believe that he is going to be favorable towards you. Believing for his goodness in your life. What effect does that feeling and that attitude have? Well, it, the fear, the guilt, the shame, like the brothers do here, their temptation is to try and relate transactionally. They say, well, if we're coming into the house, we need to pay back what we owe. And again, as a picture of how we might relate to God, if we're feeling those things, if we're weighed down by those things, then perhaps we experience the same things. Maybe it looks like this. God, I'm sorry for what I've done this week. I promise I'll do better next week. (laughs) You ever prayed that prayer? God, I I know I'm not great, (laughs) but I'll, I'll do some good deeds this week. I'll serve a bit more. I'll help people more. I'll show that I can be a good Christian. Is that a prayer you pray? How you're prone to relate to God? God, I feel too dirty to come to church this week. If we're thinking that, we're thinking in that transactional mindset that the brothers have here. If I'm coming in, I need to give back. I need to do a bit more. But they miss the point. It's not going to work. The brothers, their money doesn't work to get them in the house. But neither do our promises to God. He's not looking for that from you. God is not looking for that from you. Money doesn't buy his mercy. <laughs> Neither do our promises. And as I said, that what they're met with, this statement from the steward of the house, <laughs> sounds awfully like Jesus to me. Verse 24, he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. We come to God with guilt and with fear and he meets us with peace. He meets us with peace. Do not be afraid. And even that, your God has put treasure in your sacks. God has paid the debt that we owe Already, what a picture of the gospel this is. What a picture of the gospel. The the debt has already been paid. That's why the cross is the, the center point of the gospel of what God has done for us and how we relate to him. He has paid our debt already. He has paid our debt already. Paid it in full. And takes upon the cross the wages of our sin. And gives us the riches of his righteousness. Your God has put treasure in your sacks already. That's the position of the Christian. (laughs) They come to God and they realize, oh, there's grace for me. I was expecting maybe his disapproval. I was so aware of my sin. But I met with grace. And I realize what I've done has been paid for already. He meets me in love. 
If ever your instinct is to pay God back for what you have done or not done, <laughs> and feeling like, oh, I don't deserve to come into this your house, <laughs> like the brothers don't, God's response is, yes, you don't deserve. And we don't deserve to come to God. And yet, He has made a way. God has chosen to welcome us in. He's chosen to welcome us in. If you're anything like me, your instinct is to come to God sometimes and relate transactionally to him. But he wants to meet us where we're at. And instead of a transaction, he meets us with relationship. He doesn't want payment. He, he wants a meal. <laughs> That's what the brothers get here. They come to God. They come to the, the house of salvation with their money. And they get a meal laid on for them. And again, how much like Jesus is this? You read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. How often does Jesus just go to people's houses to eat with them? Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. He didn't think he could come to God, and God comes to him. I'm coming to your house today. I just want to get to know you. I want to share a meal with you. Zacchaeus is that. Mary and Martha, he goes to their house. Matthew, the tax collector. Simon, the leper. Simon, the Pharisee. That's just the ones that are by, mentioned by name of people that Jesus goes to their house and eats with them. Good people, bad people, rich people, poor people. People think that they're worthy. People think they're unworthy. Jesus comes to them and says, I want to sit with you. The more I read the Bible, the more I realize God just wants to have dinner with his people. <laughs> he wants them to be blessed. He wants you to be blessed by his hospitality. And that's where this story ends up. The brothers come in and they come into the house and they have this feast with Joseph. He lays the table for them. Do you notice they, they, they're welcomed in, they get food, they get water, they get feet are washed. <laughs> Again, it's like Jesus. And also the, another detail in this I just love, that the brothers are sat at the table in age order. <laughs> and it says they look at each other in amazement. Because it's not just a generic table <laughs> that's laid for them. God lays a table with our names on. <laughs> that's what I get from this. Place names. He knows us. He knows we're coming. And he says, I want you to come and be at my table. And there's a place for you. A personal place for you. What a wonder. It also says that Benjamin gets five times as much. <laughs> Perhaps Joseph there is testing his brothers of what's really gone in the heart. And we're going to look at that a little bit more next week. The testing of the brothers. But again, this shows compassion. I guess Joseph is representing God here and laying on this feast. But we see the compassion of the Savior as well. Verse 29, And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke? 
God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And then he washed his face and came out and controlled himself, saying, serve the food. (laughs) A wonderful picture of God's compassion. (laughs) His compassion grew warm. A saviour full of compassion for his brothers. I've said already that this chapter begins with famine and ends in feasting. I've said already that this chapter follows this same salvation passage, uh, pattern of the whole Bible. And it does, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, cast out of the provision of food, have to do with themselves, facing famine themselves. And yet the end of the Bible, how does the Bible end? So it looks forward to the end times. Revelation 19, I'm going to read it because there's a feast right at the heart of it. Revelation 19, then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord of our our God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. And the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. Do you know Jesus? If you know Jesus, you need to know that you're invited to the heavenly wedding feast. To eat with him. To celebrate his kingdom in a heavenly feast beyond what we can even imagine. He's the lamb that was mentioned there. The sacrificial lamb who died for his people. He's also the groom who's won his bride, the church, his people to himself through sacrificial love. He's paid the debt. He's put treasure in our sack. Your eternal destiny, if you know Jesus, your eternal destiny is to feast with him. A heavenly feast to share his table. How amazing for Joseph's brother here. A feast laid on that they weren't expecting. They're met with grace that they didn't deserve. Given treasure they couldn't afford. A debt that's been paid. They were ushered in to the house of salvation. Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If you know Jesus, there's a place for you in his house. There's a place for you at his table. And the invitation is to come to him. Come without money. (laughs) Come without promises. Come and receive. Come and eat. Come and enjoy the blessings of his riches. In this life, some of us will face famine. (laughs) We'll face days of famine. We'll face days of feasting. 
But there is a day to come of feasting eternally with Jesus. Whatever comes today, that is what tomorrow brings for us. We're going to respond right now in worship and in taking communion, which points towards this wonderful feast. And Stephen's going to lead us in that. Why don't we stand together?